Hello and welcome back to the podcast of ideas from the team here at the Academy of Ideas. And my name is Jacob Reynolds. I'm delighted to be joined today by our director, Claire Fox. Oh, literally only an hour ago, Claire and I sat down uh, together and recorded this conversation that you'll hear in a minute, where we were reflecting on the kind of political chaos in Westminster. The main focus of the conversation was around some of the bigger, longer term trends that were kind of shaping the chaos that we were seeing in Westminster. Nonetheless, in the space of that hour, a major development has occurred, which is that Liz Truss has resigned. And so we'd be very remiss if we put out a podcast in which we talk about uh, a few things related to Liz Truss staying on and how long she stayed on. If we didn't, as I say, record a little bit extra uh, to get some immediate reaction to kind of what this means. So, uh, Claire, what does it all mean for us? Well, as, as, as much as I could predict anything, I did say while we're doing this podcast, anything could have happened by the time you listen to it. So in that sense, I was right. Um, I've just um, popped over to Westminster to, uh, you know, hang out on the terraces and get a sort of sense of the mood. So a few things to report. The, the first thing is, is that there is a sense of relief that Liz Truss has gone and then a sense of panic about not knowing what to do. So amongst the Conservatives that I spoke to, the main name that's being mentioned is Boris Johnson standing again and people having various views of that, which strikes me as what can only be described as a deficit of imagination, that the only thing that anyone can think of is Boris Johnson as a united, uh, unifying figure. Somebody they'd all turned their backs against only a few <coughs> weeks ago now, really, months ago. <clears throat> but also, it is true that Boris Johnson has more of a mandate than anyone else that they're talking about, because then the next conversations would be on Penny Morden. Everybody kept telling me what a great communicator she was. And I asked them, did it matter that she didn't have anything very interesting to communicate? And it was a kind of deathly silence. Um, in other words, she's kind of like the PR version of, uh, you know, public relations version of, oh, well, at least she can speak well and we might have some good fun in Prime Minister's questions. And then, of course, there's the Rishi Sunak question, which is, he is the heir to the throne. But there is nervousness amongst the people I talked to that that would be perceived as looking like it was almost a plan to get Rishi Sunak in place and that in, all along that had been what people had wanted. So, you know, they think he's probably the best man for the job in that technocratic way. So that was that bit. Uh, but interestingly, talked to some Labour people as well who said, um, do you think there should be a general election? And I don't think I actually said this in the earlier podcast, but of course there should be a general election. I mean, I don't want one either. It'll be tiresome, but I, that's not the point. The point is you cannot have these machinations at the top without actually democratically having a mandate. And when Liz Trust resigned, the one true thing she said, and she did actually look relieved, I have to say, in a very brief moment, what she said was, I, you know, I cannot fulfill the mandate that I stood as leader of the party because you can't. She's not, it's just been cancelled, as it were. And so you could say, as a woman of principle, she just said, I can't do this anymore, or she got sacked. Who knows the answer? Um, but more importantly, the Conservative Party can't rule without a democratic mandate. And they just haven't got one at the moment. And so, of course, there should be a general election. So then I talked to the Labour Party and they say there should be a general election. And then they said, well, we hope it'll be like maybe in six months or like eight months or uh, they don't feel, you know, they, they don't want to have to go into this and rule. And it's this kind of reluctance to rule, uh, 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 you know, and, and what's more, a reluctance to face the doorstep. So I, uh, I, I heard from some people 
understand how true this is, that some MPs are talking to whether parties talking about defecting, that some are saying, especially if there's a very quick general election, that some are saying um, they're going to resign from politics altogether, they're not going to stand, they can't face it. Um, so there's a sort of a sense of despondency. So the Liz Truss resignation has not resolved the problems of politics. It simply illustrated them. It's illustrated that we live in extraordinary times. The ever reliable um, uh, security guards, who were my kind of proper standing board in the laws, because they're always sensible, have just said, uh, two of them have just said, time for us to take back control. Absolutely right. They are spitting feathers, but bemused. And they say, those lot can't rule. Some of us have got better ideas. And I go back to my original theme of the podcast before, which is that the ruling elite do not know how to behave at this time. They don't know how to rule. They've made a mess of this. And the democratic process has not just got to kick in in terms of a vote at a general election, but actually a sense of the citizens of this country grasping back some power from the uh, politicians because they do a better job of it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a message that we can all kind of get get behind. And as you say, that was certainly a theme of what we, we spoke about before. So it's up to really us now to to grasp the nettle and, and see what the future of politics might bring. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for jumping back on. As I mentioned, you'll now hear a conversation with Claire Fox that I had just before we got the news that Liz Truss had resigned. We still think there's plenty of useful stuff in there, not least reflecting on the longer and deeper trends that have shaped where we are now. So I hope you do enjoy the conversation. Well, I mean, given the sense of chaos pervading politics right now, where, I mean, things are literally changing by the minute, I thought it'd be uh, really useful to sit down with you, Claire, not just to kind of get the temperature in Westminster, but also try and provide a little bit of context to events. Because whilst it can seem like a farce, obviously what is happening right now is both the product of longer trends, but also it carries tremendous significance, not just in terms of the future of the Conservative Party, but for Britain as a whole. And Claire, I think you'll be really helpful in kind of helping us to make sense of some of that. So, I mean, but to start, I mean, give us a sense of the mood in Westminster. What are people saying? What's the kind of general feeling uh, in, in political circles at the moment? Well, the House of Lords is not the House of Commons, so it's not quite as in meltdown, but it's reflected by a complete lethargy when it comes to legislation. So there's a number of bills going through the House of Lords and you can tell that nobody really has the courage, you know, no, nobody has the kind of gusto to even argue against the government's bills or the government haven't got the gusto to fight back. And they're not necessarily the most important pieces of legislation, but because everybody feels as though it's quite performative, you know, because they're literally looking over their shoulder, will the government be in existence? The ministers who are newly appointed are not sure whether they're going to be here for the next five minutes, never mind the next five days, or all of that's going on. That's one thing. The Labour Party are in bumptious mood. Uh, that's the only way to describe it. I mean, they, they think they're about to take power. There's a lot of catcalling and, you know, yahooing in, in, in question time and Anytime a government minister says anything, it's like, oh, you know, that kind of thing. So they're sort of quite enjoying the implosion of the Conservatives. The Conservative um, members that I spoke to, the backbenchers, I mean, often seasoned members 
of the Conservative Party have just got their head in their hands. I mean, they just literally, you know, like what they realize that, that they're in a tricky situation. But for example, they have to bring forward um, the public order bill into the House of Lords quite soon. That's the one which is going to criminalize the right to demonstration very seriously. And there will be a, you know, and could be and should be a massive argument about whether these draconian authoritarian rules they're bringing in to deal with the Just Stop Oil protesters um, are necessary. And they will want to say, we have a mandate to do this because the public do not want all of these ridiculous Just Stop Oil people clogging up the streets, destroying people's lives and livelihoods and, and so on. And, I, you know, a lot of sympathy with that. But they haven't got a large mandate, have they? So Ella Braverman was only the other day launching that bill and she's no longer there as the Home Secretary. So when they then say to the opposition people in the House of Lords, including myself in this instance, um, you know, who do you speak for? It's a bit like, well, who do you speak for? I mean, where's this come from? You can't say you've got a large majority, you don't know what you're doing, and so on and so forth. You know, there's an energy prices bill going through, which I'm not involved in, um, and I heard that it descended into some farcical scenes around fracking yesterday, because nobody knows whether the Tories were mandated to have a moratorium, whether they can overturn that mandate. In other words, government is largely in chaos. And just a final thing, and, and I know you'll be interested in this, uh, a friend of mine has just contacted me saying that he's got two Ukrainian people who he's trying to organise visas for, and this should be going through straightforwardly. It isn't, there's a problem with me, he doesn't know why. The MP and the MP's assistant just not answering I stopped the minister dealing with Ukrainian uh, refugees today. And he said, I'm not the minister dealing with Ukrainian refugees. I was sacked. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to disturb you. Uh, um, do you know who it is? And he said, not really. Look, send me an email and I'll see if I can mention it to someone. But, you know, I don't really know what to say to you. He was actually the most effective minister that had been on this question. And he no longer is in post and he doesn't even know who to refer it to. So behind the scenes, of course, not only the, the big government legislative programme in chaos, but the everyday workings of ensuring that citizens and some of the promises of the government, for example, to honour their commitment to Ukrainian refugees, just somehow just stop behind the scenes. Nobody knows who to go to and MPs are not even doing their job of answering emails. Yeah, Claire, I mean, it seems to, it seems very much that the mood there then kind of reflects the mood, not, I mean, more broadly in the country, this feeling that there's a kind of big um, power vacuum at the, the heart of the government. And I know that you've kind of noted already on, on Twitter and elsewhere that, I mean, that's not just a kind of abstract power vacuum, that's a democratic vacuum at the heart of the part of the government. And I wondered if, I mean, you and I have been talking a lot recently about this sense that really it's the time has kind of come to put this question back to the people and that this can't go on in the, the, the form that it's going on in. I mean, do, do you have any kind of reflections on on that, that this is kind of, as I say, expressive of a democratic vacuum as well as just a kind of political? Yeah. I think this is the core question, Jacob. I mean, the at the most superficial level, even if you look at the argument going on within the Conservative Party at the moment, some of the kind of bigwigs in the Conservative Party and some of their big supporters have basically, and I think they have a nerve, turned around and said, the reason why we're in this mess is because the Conservative Party members are idiots. 
They're so stupid that they voted for Liz Trust, failing to acknowledge that the choice that Conservative Party members were given was Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. It really was the worst of two evils. And most of the membership actually favoured other candidates in the election. Um, and so actually they didn't really choose Liz Truss. They chose the worst of the choices that the MPs had given them. But there's something telling about the fact that the conclusion is what we've now got to do is never let the membership decide again because they are so backward and so ridiculous and don't understand politics that they want to um, uh, grasp hold of even the semblance of a democratic choice that the membership of the Conservative Party might have. And that, I think, that is an, a knee-jerk anti-democratic reaction that we see throughout this whole discussion. Because, of course, the broader question is, oh, well, it's the public in general who are stupid because they wanted uh, Brexit. Because they wanted Brexit, they voted for Boris Johnson. He was a disaster. Uh, Boris Johnson's, you know, successor in some ways, people would say, would be Liz Truss. Therefore, it's the public's fault. So at every single level, you blame the public. Meanwhile, the public is watching. And I think it was Tom Slater who said this very well, which is we all woke up one morning and a bit like if there'd been a kind of military uh, uh, coup over the night and the kind of head of the junta appears upon your television reassuring everyone, don't worry, stay calm, I'm in charge. That's what it was like seeing Jeremy Hunt appear from absolutely nowhere. The man who came last in the leadership contest, he was on record as having uh, an attitude to democracy that is um, ambivalent to say the least, particularly in relation to his enthusiasm for the Chinese state's lockdown measures during the COVID pandemic and suggesting that this was something we could learn from. You know, not a democratic bone in his body, a technocrat supreme. And it feels just like um, the way that it must have felt in Greece and Italy and those various countries where the EU said, we think your democratic process doesn't work anymore. So we're just appointing some uh, competent bank manager types uh, to run things. The other problem that, that the Labour Party have got to take into account is we're told that all this is necessary because the markets didn't like it. Now, I thought that Liz Truss and Quasi Quartang's mini budget had so many flaws in it and was so problematic in so many ways that indeed I would have argued against it and did argue against it. However, I didn't do that because I said the markets didn't like it. This is there is no alternative. We should do what the markets say. You know, it's like an act of God. The markets decide. I mean, my goodness, the Labour Party ought to be wary of that, because if they have to do what the markets decide, then basically it's a matter of who's in charge. You just do what the markets tell you to do. So there can never be any economic change. Uh, we're stuck with the status quo. It's only if um, uh, certain people who are the money people uh, make a decision as to whether you can change a, a situation where growth is stagnant and safe into one which is much more uh, risky but ambitious that you actually have an industrial policy, for example, the markets might not like that, but it might still be the right thing to do and you have to defy them. So at every stage, the public are just abhorred. And my final bit on this, I want, somebody stopped me at the tube this morning, said, are you Claire Fox? Dreaded words, let me tell you, because they could be about to abuse me and tell me how bad I am. As a young black guy taking his kid to nursery and he just said, you know what, what is going on? I'm just looking. I can't understand what's going on. And then he said, don't people understand that Liz Trust didn't cause the problems of inflation. She didn't cause the problem. And he wasn't even a Liz Trust supporter, but he couldn't cope with the fact that the conversation had moved so, so far away from common sense 
that we were blaming every single thing that had happened on two rather incompetent, useless prime minister and, and, and chancellor, uh, as though nothing had ever happened or proceeded before it. And you weren't allowed to query that because you'd be accused of being a Liz Truss apologist or something. We should note, because I, I don't know when people will be watching or listening to this, that as we are doing this recording, Graham Brady has gone into number 10, the leader of the 1922 committee. And we, the public, are just kind of sitting there going, why is he going in? Is she about to be deposed? It's like a soap opera, isn't it? But as you rightly point out, Liz Truss at the moment is like somebody who's been captured by, you know, she's like a hostage. It's like a hostage situation. When she speaks, she's like one of those people who say, I'd just like to say that I was spying for America. I haven't got a gun to my head. I truly mean that I want to apologize for imperialism, you know, and we're all looking thinking, oh, that person's in terror. I mean, she's just like saying words dead behind the eyes. I mean, at, at a human level, you can think, oh my God, this is awful. But she's literally been trundled out to speak and trundled back in again. And I think the chaos last night around the vote for fracking was an indication of the fact that the Conservative Party have imploded. I mean, whatever else happens now, they have imploded. And whoever they put in place of Liz Truss, or if she stays there, whatever happens, that's not going to take away from the fact that this is a long-term, deep problem that we're just witnessing in real time. Uh, this is a, a historic collapse of the Conservative Party. Yeah. So, to, I mean, to get on to some of those histor more historic trends, I mean, we've just, we're kind of fresh off the, the weekend of the Battle of Ideas Festival. We've had actually quite a lot of discussions. We kind of took a specific decision to make as much of the festival as about not just the kind of immediate political moments, but kind of longer economic trends and political trends and how we got here. So we're, look we're really looking forward to releasing some of those discussions as, as soon as possible. But I mean, on the one hand, you can read this as the failure of the Conservative Party to grasp the mantle of Brexit, and they kind of fumbled that ball. I mean, Matthew Goodwin can't can't write enough about how, how this was like a historic missed opportunity that maybe will go down in not just the kind of British textbooks, but kind of world political textbooks. Um, and then there's, of course, also the, the economic kind of longer term economic questions that initially precipitated this, where you've got a an economy that's kind of really really struggling to deliver increased living standards for people and whilst the kind of the government lost the confidence of the markets in the short term in the long term really it was kind of like product of a a, a longer process i mean and any of the kind of longer term trends that you think we really need to get to grips with if we're going to understand how we got here yeah i mean let's just deal with the economy first and when i say deal with it what i mean is this is what people should think about to do some reading and thinking about it and to look at some of those debates and the battle of ideas and some of the people who know a bit more than me but for a very long time I mean you know we've been going 17 years at the Academy of Ideas and the we've had a, 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 an Academy of Ideas economy forum and people like uh, Rob Lyons our colleague um, uh, who runs the economy forum and people like uh, uh, James Woodhouse and, and of course Phil Mullen have been talking for years you know now decades about the problem of stagnated productive economic life and saying everything has been financialized it's completely superficial they're avoiding tackling the difficulties and I think that even the people who say why don't people recognize that closing down the economy for two years during lockdown has created this of course that's been a hugely damaging period and they're right to to at least want to go back to remind people of that historic mistake and it was a mistake 
But the reason why the economy was so badly affected by the closure of the economy for two years and the paying of furlough and, and all of the things that happened at that point was precisely because the British economy has been stuck. You know, it has not been making anything, it's not been producing anything, and it has not invested in, taken risky decisions to invest in technology, innovation, R&D, and so on, and has therefore sort of skated over doing just about a little bit of growth based on low interest rates, which is cheap money, and pretending that it meant that there was something productive happening. And so as soon as something catastrophic like the lockdown associated with COVID happened, it's just been exposed as incredibly weak. So there's that side to it. And both political parties, I mean, this is quite important. That is not a critique coming from the Labour Party. I mean, and their solution, which is to say, we still want productive growth, is to say we want green jobs. I mean, that seems to be it. And they're already limiting uh, themselves um, through the prism of environmentalism. And we know that one of the reasons why the energy situation is so bad, which does affect uh, productive uh, activity, is because of the uh, ridiculous uh, uh, net zero targets, but generally a, a philosophical commitment to anti-growth trends. I mean, you know, that, that's been evident. I mean, the Battle of Ideas has discussed this. I mean, every year, I think. And um, people say growth is morally problematic. It makes you greedy. It makes you, you know, it damages everything. You know, it's led to lots of problems. It's destroying the planet. And, and this has been bought into by people who run the corporate sector, businesses, the whole of the political elite of, of all parties. And not with no recognition that this would mean that you would limit the way that you would think about um, increasing productivity. So there's deep rooted problems. Liz Truss and Quasi Quartent's ineptitude and silly version of growth, which was if we cut taxes, it'll all be all right. And, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, there is a, the lampooning of the Institute of Economic Affairs, who were very good on non-statism, but less good on the economy, obviously, has some truth to it, because it did really feel as though, you know, uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs seminar group had kind of got hold of the reins of power and kind of gleefully announced it, put it out on the nation. And because they didn't seem to understand what they were doing, that, as much as anything, freaked out the market. Um, but the problems were deep and long running. Yeah, I, I think it's something really that people need to get to grips with. And I mean, bipartisan is kind of like a, it's kind of a bit of a vague and, and mushy word, but there is a sense that everybody is kind of importing their own particular pet grievance onto the current economic issues. And you talked about like lots of friends that we've made, uh, you and I opposing the lockdown are suddenly like, this is their moment to show that the lockdowns destroyed everything. Similarly, there's a moment of people saying, well, this is why we're sanctioning Russia or defending uh, Ukraine is the wrong thing. It got us into this mess with to do with energy. Um, and I'm sure you and I will bring our own biases to it as well, but we really do need to just kind of take a step back and think about the the longer the longer term trends that have shaped the economy that we have today and how it's kind of constraining our, our choices um, at the moment. The other thing on the economy that slightly worries me is the degree to which trusts et al. have now to some degree discredited the idea of growth. That yeah. I mean, like some thinkers that I really like and respect, I see publishing articles at the moment saying, well, why do we need growth anyway? 
Um, really, this is just all kind of silly. Can't we just find another way to manage the economy? And so I think that we as as Democrats and people who, as you say, recognize the need to revitalize the economy are really going to have to grapple with these things over the next um, coming, over the coming months and years. So, I mean, mo moving on, maybe in terms of some of the other contexts, I mean, I mentioned Brexit and the failure to grasp and mantle yeah. the Brexit. Do you really, is this really a case that the, the Tories really like dropped the ball on this one? Or, or may, were they ever capable of kind of take, seeing it through anyway? No, so I mean, I think that there's two things here. The most immediate point to note, and I think you're, you make a very important point there about the discrediting of, of growth as a notion because of the mess we're in. But also part of the um, trustonomics was the removal of barriers to, you know, the supply side, as it were, endless bureaucratic restrictions that do get in the way of growth, whether that's planning regulations, whether that's endless and ceaseless environmental demands that mean that you can't build houses, that you can't build, you know, you can't build those factories you need to build. You can't develop the infrastructure around roads and railways and so on, because there's so much of that. And what, one of the things that, um, you know, that hasn't had the, the headlines so much was that Truss's project was to remove a lot of that and actually to get rid of lot, what some of which were EU legislation. Now, I don't want to do that kind of blame the EU because often EU legislation was dreamt up in Westminster because they didn't want to be accountable to the British public. They took it over to Brussels, got it through Brussels, then said, oh, we've got no choice but to implement this now. So I don't, I don't mean like those nasty Europeans are to blame. I mean, the way that the EU operated, it set in place legislation that the British public as voters couldn't challenge. And there was an attempt at saying, we're going to get rid of all that. We're going to develop our own, which is, that is what Brexit was. We'll develop our own legislation. We make our own decision about what regulations. And of course, now people are saying that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm afraid there are real intellectual fights ahead. On the broader Brexit point, I mean, when Boris Johnson um, won in 2019, I wrote a, a, an open letter, a Dear Boris letter, which got published in The Spectator, in which I warned him that it wasn't that millions of people had suddenly become conservatives, but that actually millions of people uh, wanted to get Brexit done. And it was a bit of a desperate last call, right? Which is Brexit nearly was overturned and that democratic moment nearly was lost. The Tories had been humiliated in the European elections and Boris Johnson became the leader of the Conservative Party who seemed to be able to embody somehow the spirit of Brexit. But I didn't want he, or his acolytes to believe that somehow that meant that people had joined their party, right? They couldn't take those votes for granted. And guess what happened? They took those votes for granted. Now, I know that we had lockdown. Boris Johnson got discombobulated by that and his government. But that's not, I mean, you know, so what? The point was they actually just forgot that they had a, a, a that what they would, they, what they had accidentally historically wandered into was becoming the party of realignment, which completely changed the nature of British politics in line with both the values, principles and aspirations of those people who voted to leave the European Union, which was not just about democratic accountability and sovereignty. It was a sense in which people wanted to be taken seriously, to redesign what it meant to live in Britain, to re-establish what the UK was and all of these different things. You know, it's a real opportunity and a real energy they absolutely have squandered that. And Matt Goodwin is right about that. You know, now the fact that Labour is popular, more popular with Brexit voters than the Tories, and God knows 
the Labour Party are not popular with Brexit voters, but this is really the worst, you know, the, the best of two evils. Uh, it does show what a shambles it is. On the other hand, and I think this is important, it is because of Brexit that they're falling apart. Because what's happened is, is that Brexit exposed the political parties as being not fit for purpose. And in fact, the Tory party was really finished in those European elections. It was finished when it failed to deliver on Brexit. So they are now, we are now watching what should have happened in a way happening, which is they cannot, because they do not understand that they are a relic of a, of, of, uh, of a, a patrician different period. They've never come to terms with Brexit, really. In the House of Lords, of course, it's full of Tories who are Remainers, who are as rapidly Remainer now as they ever were, if not more so. The technocratic approach, which is that the public are the problem, that the experts should be brought in, all of these things, the, the globalist agenda. I, I've got to say something about globalism. If you say the globalist agenda now, you're accused of being anti-Semitic on Twitter, I've noticed, which is mad, right? Because there is such a thing as a globalist agenda, which has got nothing to do with the anti-Semitic trope around globalism, which one should be wary of. But I mean, you know, I do have to say that, that it's, it's, it's basically, it says nation states do not make decisions, that it's done beyond uh, nation states. And as I say, that the markets decide, that the intelligent people decide, and the, 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 the populace are to be kept well away from it and they won't have any decision making. That is the tension that we're watching within the Conservative Party. But the Labour Party, because it's important to note this, have said, we're going to see through Brexit. Don't worry, those days are gone. Kirsten is, you know, riding high in the polls, massively popular in the polls. But that's something he's massively popular. And the Labour Party have never grasped what Brexit meant. They're simply rather opportunistically but fair enough saying look don't keep going on about our betrayal of you in brexit because we've got over that but their instincts are exactly the same right they are still they have abandoned any notion of representing working people in the sense of taking them seriously and i think that keir starmer in the midst of this crisis went and did a speech at the pink paper awards last night in which he announced that misgendering people will be criminal, that they're going to reorganize uh, the equalities agenda around the LGBTQI, IQ, can't remember, agenda, would indicate that they haven't got a clue. I mean, that they're still playing those identity politics cards. In other words, they too are being pulled apart. And so I think that the Labour Party would get in if there was an election, no doubt about it, but the contradictions in the two main parties in the UK are now, you can't, you know, they are imploding. Uh, it, it won't happen overnight, by the way. These things don't happen. These are old parties, right? They don't just disappear. But nonetheless, that populist revolt cannot be satisfied by those parties. And consequently, and, and we can see it much more clearly because I can't blame the EU. So in some ways, we know what's going on. They are answerable to us. We can see they're not up to it. and. I mean, you know, I think in that sense, politics is changing or rather the Brexit moment is still being realised out. And the sense of despair that people have at the betrayal, which carries on very strongly at the moment, is not the same as people having given up on their aspirations. They just realise that these parties can't deliver it to them. Yeah, I think the the point you make about drawing this back to the way in which Brexit was a reaction, not just, as you say, to kind of an accountability gap or a democratic 
gap, um, but also this sense that there was a, an elite who kind of existed in this free floating sphere, completely away from the concerns and interests of kind of, of, of people in, in the nation. And I think what part of this moment is exposing is the degree to which during that time, while all of the policymakers and politicians got so comfortable kind of moving around in, in Brussels, moving around with their kind of colleagues at the, the highest levels in, in other governments, during that time, they not only kind of forgot what the what really matters to people in their country, but they also lost all of the ability to govern. They lost the ability to have any sense of themselves as an elite who can step in and take charge if there's a kind of dangerous situation. And in the in the case of the Tories, we're seeing at the moment is that I mean, when you see some of them interviewed, they're, they're almost like always looking around their shoulder for when those old men in grey suits are going to come in and kind of restore a little bit of order. And they're slowly starting to realise that that's gone. That there is no kind of internal. A stability, a legitimacy, or authority in the in the old elites, and that they're kind of looking at re a really decayed kind of remnants of the party. And then in the Labour Party, because they themselves, they too have spent so long kind of hobnobbing with uh, various charities and think tanks and all the rest of it, rather than kind of get drawing kind of connections with the voters. That as soon as there's a crisis, as you say, their first reaction is to like pull out some policy that's been uh, sent over to them by one of their friends at Mermaids or some other kind of trans activists, rather than thinking, rather than using that time to almost go back to their constituencies that were and start asking people what they really want to, what really needs to kind of change and happen. Well, I, I mean, you've just explained it really well. And I think that that the, the, the ruling class have forgotten how to rule is very important. But the other thing that's happened is because of, the, of that technocratic mindset, which basically uh, did to the public rather than seeing the public as their masters <laughs> you know it's a very different approach people will say well, we want to help the poor we want to help the working person it's like this patronizing uh, attitude they they never see them as equal and they, they've exhibited contempt every time any agency is exhibited by ordinary uh, uh, people in fact but what what's happened is they then think oh we do need to know what people think. So we're going to go out and talk to civil society. And guess who they talk to? They talk to NGOs. They talk to all these activist groups. And they think they do have a sense that they're isolated from the public. But the only way they recognise the public is are in these, in these organisations that say we're the public. You know, we represent women. We represent ethnic minorities. We represent... And they're activists, right? And they get completely distorted by this. And I've noticed that all the time, that they wouldn't... They don't know where to, the public are. And the other thing they do is they look at polls or they look at Twitter. You know, a combination of these things is a non-reliable. They've got no instinctive sense of what the public thinks at all. And, and I, I just I kept looking at my notes because I was trying to remember his name, but it's, it's gone viral. And I mean, really viral with millions of people watching it, which was the interview with Charles Walker, the Tory MP last night. I mean, millions of people have looked at it. He's seething, right? He's seething. Mm at what's happened to his party and what his own party is. He's not angry with anyone else. He's angry with his party and with those people who forced trust on the agenda and, and so on and so forth. But uh, he said, uh, I've had enough of talentless people. And there is something in that, right? He just says they were just out of their own, uh, you know, their own skins. And I do think that talentless people is exactly what you see in Westminster and things running. I mean... I'm not being funny, but what am I doing in the House of Bloody Lords, right? I shouldn't be there either. And they've just, they just appointed a load more talentless people into the House of Lords. This is a serious legislative place. I made a pragmatic decision to, to take the peerage when I was offered it. But I'm looking around thinking, I'm surrounded by people who are making the laws of this country. And talentless people, no disrespect, is exactly what we all are. I mean, what are we doing there? And 
I and, and there's just something about the fact that talent has vacated politics. You know, it's just, it's a shell. And the public are treated as a stage army. I, I'm wary that I sometimes do, you know, I'll say red wall voters. It's a bit like, you know, who am I to represent them? But these are people with complicated, intelligent, angry questions and views. And I want, and no one's taking them seriously. And now they're really being treated as bystanders. As I say, they're even being blamed for the situation we're in. Yeah, I think that that point, you're right to draw attention to that clip. And it's gone viral, as you say, for, for those reasons. People recognise the truth in it. And from the energy question where we were talking the other day at the Battle of Ideas about even just how the people in government who are supposed to be in charge of the energy policy, when you actually, we have some people that sat down with them recently and had conversations about how power is going to be generated, what exactly wind power, how it's working, how it's not working. And they themselves are supposed to be the experts that government invites in to know about it, let alone the ministers who are so disconnected from what's going on. And there's this, as you say, class of talentless people kind of floating around. And there's it was it's well done to lampoon that class. Briefly, just wanted the, your your last reflections maybe on what we can expect in the in, in the near future. People, I mean, you've noted that even if the Tory party does kind of implode it, it might not happen overnight. But people have started saying we're effectively in the UK in a kind of Italy situation or something like that, where the technocracy is coming to rule. But at the same time, I've got the memory of the Fe Battle of Ideas Festival fresh in my mind where you couldn't turn a corner without someone stopping you and going, hey, I feel so politically homeless. What are we all going to do? So how do you think that tension is going to play out? Well, I, I mean, we're all we're all struggling with this. There's no obvious parties around. I mean, you know, Reform UK is saying they're doing quite well. Um, uh, SDP, you know, there's all these like small parties trying to name themselves. So. What I'd say is there's no obvious party to 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 rise, but but when you say about people saying at the Battle of Ideas they're politically homeless, they're also saying I'm politically homeless, but I'm not politically disengaged. Since the Battle of Ideas, which was only four days ago, I keep bumping into people who say, when is that Battle of Ideas festival? I really want to come now. And it's like, oh no, so you missed it. Uh, although we are in Buxton on November the 5th. Um, in other words, you know, down but not out, down but not out in a big way. So I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that the spirit of resistance is still there and fury and anger, and they will punish the Tories if there's an election and the Labour Party will get in. The Labour Party won't be able to contain its own contradictions. The populist spirit of reshaping politics for the better is not dead, although it, goodness knows, it's kind of feels tired and grubby and by having been exposed to the to the to the misuse of their energies uh, it's a difficult time and economically we're all going to bloody suffer i mean you know they haven't got any solution none of them have got any solution to the economy that deep seated and we're going to have a really tough winter but i think that um the energy of particularly younger people but all sorts of people at the battle of ideas was an indication right this is not good enough we're not having this Right, and you said they brought the technocrats into Italy. It didn't work, right? They, they bring the technocrats in. They say they say that populism's over, and the next minute it's election, it's like, oh my god, we just got no votes, and some populists did. Some of the populists are not to my taste, as they say, and um, there'll be a big scramble and a big fight. But I think it's up to us to make as positive a fist of arguing what we want from the world um, and, and putting ourselves firmly in, in the centre of that struggle that just means that they don't get away with sidelining uh, uh, popular opinion. That, that, that seems to me to be hugely important. And we at the Academy of Ideas also believe 
that knee-jerk reactions and just saying what you thought five minutes ago, even though I have made some impressionistic points, is not sufficient. We have to locate ourselves in history. We have to have some sense of historically what's happened before us, what we can learn, where we are in history. We have to understand philosophically where we stand, uh, you know, not some sort of naff free market kind of headline or, or meme, but really understand what, what you need to do with the economy. We need to read more, we need to discuss more, we need to debate more. And those people who think that free speech is not important, absolute nonsense, never before. I mean, God, this is when you need free speech, more of it than ever, because we're going to have to have some hard arguments. We're going to have to say some hard, insulting, offensive things to each other to get through this in order to struggle our way through. So we need to be brave enough to just go free speech, whatever the knocks, whatever we hear, we'll deal with it and argue it out. Argue against those who are going conspiratorial down rabbit holes. Argue against those who are fatalistic and think there's nothing that can be done and argue against the silly, superficial uh, theories that come up to solve the problem. And most importantly, argue against the technocracy, which is, as it speaks, the enemy of the people, the enemy of free speech, the enemy of intelligent political uh, uh, change. And um, we should not let them get away with it. We should have it out. Uh, thanks, Claire. Thanks for joining us. That was uh, really useful and helpful. And people, of course, can send in some of their comments if they want to this as it goes out on Substack. And if, if we want to carry on the conversation, we're always here. And as Claire says, we'll be in Buxton on the 5th of November. If anyone wants to join us, we'll be delighted to see you all there for a day where we'll be covering a lot of these, uh, really will be covering a lot of these issues. So it's, it's a chance for us. Yeah. And also, by the way, because I, I, I keep forgetting, people keep saying to me, how do I keep in touch? And if you're watching on Substack, you know about our Substack, right? But what you've got to do is tell everybody else, right? So that more and more people, I mean, they don't have to read it, they don't want to, but just sign up as a subscriber. Uh, you can do that for free. And, and just let's get the word out, get the debate going. And of course, if you've got any spare dosh, that always helps as well. But the main thing is that we create a community of resistance. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for your time today.